Well, this is Bruce Hayes, and I want to welcome you back to PV Bible Alive. This is the ministry of Parkview Baptist Church in Wichita, Kansas. And we have been going through a study through Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, about the role of government. This is the second message over this topic. So we're going to jump right in today and look at verses 1 through 7. It says there, Let every soul be in subjection to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are ordained by God. Therefore he who resists the authority withstands the ordinance of God, and those who withstand will receive to themselves judgment. For rulers are not a terror to the good work, but to the evil. You desire to have no fear of the authority, do that which is good, and you will have praise from the authority. For he is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger for wrath to him who does evil. Therefore you need to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this reason you also pay taxes, for they are servants of God's service, continually doing this very thing. Therefore give everyone that you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If customs, then customs. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Well, we've often said through the years that we live in a Christian nation here in the United States. We say it because our founders were Christian, or at least they had a positive attitude toward Christian and biblical values. We say it because our system of government and laws have historically been based in a biblical understanding of right and wrong, of human nature, of freedom. We say it because for years, a majority of America's citizens identified themselves as Christian. I mean, the latest I saw in a survey, there's probably statistics that are more recent than these, but in 2014, 70.6% of people in the United States still identified themselves as Christian. Well, of course, that is a deceptive number, because if you were to ask those same people what Christian means, many could not correctly define it. But it does demonstrate that we have come historically from that kind of background. But in recent years, that's changed. For a lot of us, in God we trust is still written on our coins, but me first is really engraved on our hearts. But the point I'm trying to get to for this message today is that... Um, Though we've called ourselves a Christian nation, our government has sometimes been far from it. In fact, one might say that there really is no such thing as a Christian government. At least until the time when Christ returns and reigns in the millennium, every government is going to be a flawed institution. It's going to be far from perfect. So, as believers, that brings us to a question. How do we deal with flawed governments? How do we deal with unjust laws? How do we deal with dictatorships or governments that maybe mix democracy and, and Republican forms of government, and then there may be corruption involved? How do we deal with all that? Well, Romans 13.1 gives us that basic instruction, and we considered that in the previous sermon. It says there, let every soul be in subjection to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are ordained by God. It also says in verse 5, therefore you need to be in subjection not only because of the wrath, but also 
for conscience sake. We are to be subject to the government that we live under. And there are other scriptures that say the same thing. Titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 2 says, Remind them to be in subjection to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then if you go just one chapter before chapter 13 in Romans, Paul writes this, Repay no one evil for evil. Respect what is honorable in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as is up to you, be at peace with all men. Don't revenge yourself. Don't seek revenge for yourselves, beloved, but give place to God's wrath. For it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. So, our whole existence in this world is to be understood as temporary. And so, we don't try and seek for some sort of perfect justice or some sort of perfect society in the world we're living in. We be, because we know that it, it's not possible. So, we just submit ourselves. Now, the Bible also tells us why we should do so. It gives us some reasons. For example, one of the reasons why we're to submit to the government is just for peace and tranquility. So we can have a semi-peaceful life in this world that we're living in. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7, uh, the prophet Jeremiah was speaking to the children of Israel who were being taken captive into Babylon. And he said to them, Seek the peace of the city, and this is he speaking for God, where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to God for it, for in its peace you will have peace. 1 Timothy 2 says somewhat the same thing. I exhort therefore, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high places, that, and listen to this phrase, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and reverence. So the first reason why we are submissive to government is because it's going to lead to a quiet life for us. Then secondly, is if we lead that kind of life, it will silence the criticism of those who are antagonistic toward our faith. 1 Peter 2 verse 12 says, Having good behavior among the nations, so in that of which they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they see, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 13 goes on to say, Therefore subject yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to king as supreme or to governors as sent by him for vengeance on evildoers and for praise to those who do well. For this is the will of God that by well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, they will only have one thing to accuse you of, and that will be your faith. There will be no other reasons to accuse you of something you've done in this world. Then the third reason why we are to be submissive is that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. We we are not here on a permanent basis. We're not trying to build something that's going to last throughout the ages. Jesus himself said to Pilate when he was arrested and put on trial He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. In other words, if we were trying to build something here, then yes, we would use violence, we would use certain means that we have available to us in the society to overthrow the present governments or or whatever stood in our way. But, my kingdom's not of this world. And so we don't fight. Second Corinthians 10, 3-4 says, 
For though we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty before God to the throwing down of strongholds. In other words, we don't use fleshly means. We don't use physical means to try and resolve conflict or to bring some sort of justice or whatever other goals that people may have in this world. So the first point we made last week was that a Christian is to be responsible to submit to the government to the best of their ability. Now, if you don't remember, we were looking at four points around this whole idea of what is the role of government. What is the role of government? The first was that we are to submit to government. The second is that government is to promote justice. The third, government is to establish the rule of law. And then the fourth is that government is to be limited. We're going to consider government is to establish the rule of law and promote justice today, and then finished in the next sermon with the role of government is limited. So they're to promote justice. Government is to promote justice. It says in verse 2, Therefore he who resists the authority withstands the ordinance of God, and those who withstand will receive to themselves judgment for... Rulers are not a terror to good work, but to evil. They, it says in verse 4, He is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do which is e- that which is evil, be afraid. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger for wrath to him who does evil. Government is to promote justice. Now, when it really gets down to the basics of what that means, it essentially means two things. Government is to punish evil, and government is to reward good. So, you can find both of those truths in verses 2 through 4. So, let's look first at punishing evil. Verse 3, for example, again says, For rulers are, listen to these words, not a terror to the good work, but to the evil. Terror. The, the word he used there is not just fear, it's terror. He's saying that legitimately, the rulers and the authorities in your society are this kind of intense fear for those who are doing evil. He's saying that, generally speaking, those who are afraid of governing authorities are those who are doing evil, not those who are doing good. Those who are looking over their shoulder, considering whether or not there's an authority waiting to look at their activities and punish them from, are generally speaking, evil people. Those who go down the street and begin to sweat when they see a police officer are not those who are doing good, but those who are doing evil. Now, obviously, we could point to examples of the opposite. There are bad cops. There are bad governments. There are bad governing authorities, individuals that are corrupt. For example, we know that in China today, Christians are the ones who are terrorized by their government. But this is a passage about generalities. Generalities that if you don't want to be afraid of the government, then do what they tell you to do. It says, do you desire to have no fear of the authority? Do that which is good, and you will have praise from the authority. For he is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger for wrath to him who does evil. Now look at that phrase. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. 
I'm going to get back to the point that government's supposed to punish evil. Well, that phrase indicates that that sword that the first century centurion, Roman centurion, was carrying strapped around his waist wasn't there for no reason. He's saying it wasn't an empty gesture that he buckled up that belt with that uh, scabbard on his side in the morning. This was not some sort of ceremonial garb. What he's saying is the sword is used for something, and it was not to just slice bread. It was used to punish evil. It wasn't used to hold a peace symbol. It was used to threaten and sometimes even to carry out uh, some sort of punishment to stop a riot or to stop somebody who was doing violence out on the streets and in the society. Or it might even be used for the final case of capital punishment against someone who was doing evil. And this is the principle. It's the same today. What he's saying is that God instituted government. God instituted these authorities. And they don't have the means of punishment, the means of harming people in vain. The same could be held true today. You could update this passage to say, if you don't want to be afraid of the police, abide by the law. Do good, not evil. For the policeman does not carry a gun for no reason. What the point is, he's trying to make is that God gave government and and their chief responsibility is to punish evil, even at the level of the police. Jesus said somewhat the same thing to Peter in Scripture. You might remember at Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter took out his sword and slashed off the ear of one of the arresting officers. He was going to stop this arrest from taking place because it was unjust and it was evil. Well, what was Jesus' response? He said to Peter, Put away your sword, for they who live by the sword will die by the sword. Well, Jesus was simply stating that if you commit murder, you're going to receive capital punishment. And you will receive it justly. If you interfere with this arrest and kill someone in the process, then they will kill you. And they will have done so legitimately and legally. And as Paul says in verse 2 of this passage we're looking at in Romans, those who withstand will receive to themselves judgment. You might say, well, but hold on. Jesus was being unjustly arrested for crimes that he did not commit. Well, that still didn't give Peter the right to murder in vengeance for that injustice. Those officers who arrested Jesus were simply following orders, and it is their job to punish evil. And Jesus was saying to Peter, Do not take up a sword, because these officers will justly kill you if you do. So, the role of government is to punish evil, but it is also to promote good. Verse 3 again says, For rulers are not a terror to the good work, but to the evil. If you don't want to be afraid of the authority, do that which is good, and you will have praise for the authority. Now again, this is a generality. Of course there are times that government oversteps its bounds and and they begin to punish good things. We're talking about the church, uh, Grace Church in California, pastored by John MacArthur, and other churches in California. And the law came along during the coronavirus and forbade those churches from 
singing during worship services. Yes, there's times that government does things that punishes good and, and even rewards evil. But the principle that Paul is trying to impart to these Romans and to us is that in general, good is not punished, it is rewarded, and evil is punished. Kind of reminds me of Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruits of the Spirit. You might remember this passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then the last phrase after he lists these fruits of the Spirit is, Against such there is no law. What he's saying is, they don't usually make laws to forbid kindness. They don't make laws to forbid joy or love or being self-controlled. In general, those things are commended, even in a corrupt society. And so, we are to submit, um, for he is a servant of God to you for good. He's there to punish evil. He's there to reward good. And many societies do reward good. They build parks. They give tax breaks to people who are involved in charity. Uh, and they do sometimes they do things to help promote. They, they build a business atmosphere where you can prosper and give someone a job. All those things are that which is good. They're promoting good in a society. Now, we know that ultimately doing good or promoting good in the society is really the gravy on the mashed potatoes in, in any country or city or place where we live. We know that if we just get the mashed potato, if we just get punishing evil, most of us would be content. And if we got gravy on top of that, that is promoting good, that would, that would be just gravy on top of, of that which is hoped for, which is that they'll punish evil. All we can really expect from government is that they would protect our life and our property by punishing evil. If they would just do that, we would be content. Protection of life basically means they protect us from someone taking our life. They protect others from, from their lives being taken uh, if they're innocent. Uh, they destroy anybody's ability to take away property. They have certain laws in place that protect your property. So if they would just punish evil and promote good in that way, we would be content. So, so far we've considered two points about government. First, it is a Christian's responsibility to submit to government. Second, according to the Bible, government is to promote justice by punishing evil and rewarding good. Now, the third point about the role of government is that government is to establish the rule of law. This is really the how behind the punishing evil and promoting good. How do they punish evil and promote good? Well, they do so by uh, promoting or by instituting a rule of law. Romans 13 again says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Don't be, you want to be unafraid? Do which is good. You'll have praise. For he is God's minister to you for good. If you do evil, be afraid. They don't bear the sword in vain. They are there to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, you might have noticed how many times in these two verses that it emphasizes good and evil. Six times those words are used. 
So the governing authority is there to reward good and punish evil. In order to do that, they have to have laws and standards in place, and they have to define what is good and evil by those laws. Now, the chief aim behind any law is to restrain evil and to promote that which is good. Now, notice that final phrase in the passage. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. There to institute the rule of law. Frankly, one of the greatest failures in our country in the United States, is our failure to properly punish evil. That's why I believe in capital punishment. I believe in capital punishment because the Bible teaches capital punishment. Well, in a lot of people, whenever you hear that phrase, they'll say, well, you know, it says in the book of Exodus, thou shalt not kill. And they quote that passage of scripture indicating that God says don't kill people and capital punishment is killing people so we shouldn't have capital punishment. But you know, it is so predictable uh, when, for example, when someone is on death row and they're finally going to be put to death and it can take years and multiple trials and appeals and, and we even forget what they did. But people will show up outside the facility when the capital punishment is going to take place. And they will protest. And they will have lots of reasons for being there protesting. But invariably, someone will be holding up a sign that says, Thou shalt not kill. Quoting a Bible verse indicating that we shouldn't put this person to death. Well, my friends, when they do that, they're demonstrating their ignorance of the word of God. You see, God gave the command, thou shalt not kill. But then directly after that command, that command is in Exodus 20, directly after it in Exodus 21, one chapter later, it says in verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Hear that again. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. What does that indicate to you? That indicates that the Bible supports capital punishment. Verse 14 of the same chapter, But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. He's going to be put to death. And verse 15, Not just for murder either. Verse 15, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him if he's found in his hand shall surely be put to death. Verse 17, he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Listen to this one, verse 22. If a man fight and hurt a woman with child, in other words, she's pregnant, He's fighting somebody, and somehow she gets caught up in the mix, and she gets hurt so that she gives birth prematurely. Now listen, she gets hurt and and goes into labor, have the baby. But then it says, yet no harm follows. What does that mean? What that means is the baby lives. The baby is uninjured. Then it says, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. He shall pay as the judges determine. In other words, he's got to be punished with some fine or some other means to punish the violence that he did. But listen to verse 23. But if any harm follows, what does that mean? If the baby dies or if the baby is injured in some way. Then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
You know what that means? That even the child that's not born yet, if someone in a fight ended up harming the woman so that she gave birth and it kills the child, then that person that did the harming was to be put to death. And if the baby was somehow injured in another way, then they were to be punished for that injury. There was capital punishment for killing a pre-born child. And it goes beyond that. It says in verse 28 of the same chapter, If an ox gores a man or woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. In other words, somebody's animal gets out of the pen, and it attacks another person and and kills them. But the owner, they weren't trying to kill somebody, so they're acquitted. They, they're not held accountable. But listen to verse 29. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it had been made known to his owner, and he did not keep it confined so that it killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. That was basically negligent homicide. It's basically, the point I'm trying to get across to you is you cannot look at the Bible verse, thou shalt not kill, and come to the conclusion that God is opposed to capital punishment, or the Bible is anti-capital punishment. What it is anti is somebody dying at the hands of someone as a murder, and that's basically what that commandment meant in the Ten Commandments. It should really be interpreted, thou shalt not murder, because later we get a further definition of what killing was, or what, how it was defined, and we see that what he meant was murder. Well, these are the mandates, were the mandates for governing that society. These were the laws for that society. Now, we know that this was a different country, a different nation than our nation. Israel was monotheistic. Israel was um, born as a nation dedicated to God and following God's laws. We are a pluralistic society. There are a lot of things. You just can't carry laws directly over from the Old Testament uh, to our society. But the principle is still there, that we are supposed to be a, a government that punishes evil, rewards good, and we're to do so by having laws. We're supposed to rule by have the rule of law. Now, when we looked at these laws, I mean, a lot of them are very harsh. But what they really do is show you how serious God was about establishing that rule of law and having a just punishment for the evil that's done in a society. Frankly, if you want to know why we're having trouble today in our country, we have the riots taking place in cities across our country. It really comes down to the fact that we don't properly punish evil. They're, the people that are rioting are not being held to a standard. Once they destroy property or once they violate some law or, or even a curfew, they're not being held to a standard. They're just being allowed to do whatever they're going to do. So governments are to establish the rule of law. Now, the second part of this question about the rule of law is what should those laws look like? Now, ultimately, the laws that we are to have in a society, we could look at the Old Testament and the nation of Israel, 
and you could attempt to carry over many of the laws that were part of their society. But as I said, a lot of times that wouldn't be feasible. But what you can do instead is look at the Old Testament and see some principles that you might glean from their laws that help us to come to an understanding of what our laws should look like. So we've already looked at some of those Old Testament laws. And the very first principle that I think that you can glean from the ones we've already considered is that if we are going to have a law that is effective in our society, then number one, we have to punish with severity. I'm going to look at a couple of things here. The first of them is punish with severity. Second is to punish without pity. Third, punish without partiality. Fourth, punish without delay. Those are general principles of what the laws in a society should do. So look first at punish with severity. Another example of that would be Numbers chapter 35, verse 16. It says there, But if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he strikes him with a stone in the hand by which one could die and he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die and he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Verse 20, if he pushes out of hatred or lies in wait, hurling something at someone so that he dies, or in anger strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. Now, notice something there. didn't matter how the murder took place. He's supposed to put him to death. There are no qualifications here. We're to punish with severity. In other words, if you convict someone and demonstrate that they purposely went and killed someone, they did so out of vengeance or whatever the motivation is, it doesn't matter. The only thing, the only exception to that is if it's accidental. If they go murder someone, then they were to be put to death. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now, it seems in our society, on the other hand, you, you practically have to murder, you know, seven people in order to be put to death. Uh, and, and you not only have to murder them, it has to be some, something very grotesque and heinous and, and awful. There has to be extreme hatred involved, or we don't put them to death. I mean, in, even in Kansas here, we have Dennis Rader. Um, he was the BTK killer back in the uh, uh, 60s, and uh, he killed, I don't know how many people he killed, but he did exactly what his name indicates. He he bound people, he tortured them, and he killed them. But yet, whenever we finally caught the guy, he's put in prison for the rest of his life. Now, if that guy doesn't deserve capital punishment, I don't know who does. The point that the scripture says is that we are to punish with severity. You say, well, but sometimes death is accidental. Well, the Bible provides for that. It says in verse 22 of this same passage in Numbers, however, if he pushes him suddenly without anger or throws anything at him without lying in wait or uses a stone, throwing at him without seeing him so that he dies while he's not an enemy, he's not seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. In other words, you still judge the case, you adjudicate the case, but once you've determined that they are legitimately a murderer, 
then they are to be put to death. Judgments were to be severe. They were to be harsh. And the reason for that was to prevent future crime. Not only from the person that committed that crime, but to send a signal to the rest of society that we do not put up with murder in our land. By the way, you may not be aware of this, but the nation of Israel back in this day, at least as God instituted it, had no prison system. You say, well, how in the world did they have no prison system and, and deal with people who committed crimes? Well, everything that a person did as a crime in, in Israel as a society resulted in one of three basic punishments. It was either the death penalty, for example, rape, that was death penalty, kidnapping, death penalty, adultery, death penalty, or the punishment was restitution. If you stole from somebody, you had to restore four or five times what you stole. They didn't put them in prison. They made them go work and pay back what they stole. Or the third possibility was corporeal punishment. There was whippings, uh, those kind of things that were done in order to punish somebody who had committed some crime. Now, I'm not saying that we can return to those same kind of corporeal punishments, but I tell you what, somebody who received a whipping and was then able to go on with their life and move back into society would have been far better off as a person than someone we send off to jail for six months, a year, two years, five years, where they learn to be a better criminal. But the reason behind those kinds of punishments was because, number one, there are four reasons why judgment was to be severe. Number one is that it satisfied God's standard of justice. We are satisfying God ensuring that we have done what God requires. Number two, it deterred others from committing the same crime. Number three, it restrained the person themselves from committing a crime again. If they're put to death, they can't commit another crime. If they have a severe punishment, then they won't want to commit the crime. The fourth thing was rehabilitation. There was actually an intent to try and bring a person back from the, the way that they had chosen. Now, notice that I listed last rehabilitation. That's because it's last in Scripture. We often put that first. And we say, well, you know, this person's been in prison for all these years, and they are a changed person. Well, my goodness, they're a changed person. Of course, they've been in prison. And they know that the only way they're ever going to get out of prison is to be a changed person. And so they may be very good at putting on a show, may even convert in prison, become a Christian, become a preacher, whatever else it is. And so we say, well, they're a model prisoner. So we ease up on the punishment. But the problem with that is, if we're going to follow the principle of our punishments being severe, if we ease up on punishments like that, then we have made the fourth reason, rehabilitation, more important than the top three. And we have undermined the top three reasons. We did not satisfy God's standard of justice. We did not deter others from committing the same crime because they see the guy got out. And number three, we didn't restrain that criminal. They can go out and go commit the same kind of crimes again. So it's to be severe. That's where we get these phrases from the Old Testament. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Just means it's to be a severe punishment. Now that's the first principle. The second principle is 
that punishments are to be without pity. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 13 says this, If anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities. Now what he's talking about is there were in Israel cities of refuge. That meant if you accidentally killed somebody, you wanted to make sure that someone didn't come along and avenge you. You know, the the relatives, uh, they kill you because you killed their relatives. So there was a place where you could go be safe, be protected, and they were called cities of refuge. Now it says in verse 12, Then the elders of this city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. What he's basically saying is, you discover that this guy didn't kill anybody accidentally. He did it on purpose. He was, uh, he's a murderer. So, says, you're supposed to turn him over so he can die. Verse 13, your eye shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. You're not to have pity. And say, well, you know, do we really want to, we really want to take away this guy's life? No. You, the principle is you follow through with the severe punishment, and you do so without pity once you determine that they are indeed the murderer or whatever other thing you have convicted them of. The third principle is without partiality. Deuteronomy 13.6 says, If your brother the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or your wife, or your friend, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers. Now see here, so you have a friend in this Jewish society who was trying to get you to go worship another god other than Yahweh, other than Jehovah, other than the one true God. Now, keep in mind that this society, there was a law that if you if you worshipped another god, or you tried to get somebody to worship another god, or you built an idol or whatever, that it was capital punishment. Now, again, we can't bring that over to our society, but the principle is that we're not to be partial. He says in verse 8, you shall not consent to him, listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, or spare him, or conceal him. In other words, just because he's your relative, because he's your best friend, it says you shall make sure that they're put to death. They, and they would stone him with stones because of that. So, you're not to have partiality just because the person who committed a crime is a good friend. And there are other principles in Scripture that say just because they're rich, they still have to make sure that the, the crime is punished according to the law. Just because they're poor and we say, well, you know, they, they had a hard life. No, the Scripture says just because they're poor, we're not to pity them either. You're to do this without partiality. In other words, the rich and famous get the same punishment for the poor and lowly, and you judge without considering a person's influence, fame, or their relationship to you or to the society. The fourth thing, a fourth principle, is you're to punish without delay. Without delay. Deuteronomy chapter 30, 25, verse 1 through 2 says, If there is a dispute between men, and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Notice there, He's saying, once you determine that the person is guilty, immediately they are punished. Immediately. If they deserve to be beaten, the judge will cause the man to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. 
In other words, it was to happen immediately. Ezra chapter 7, verse 26. Whoever will not observe the law of your God, the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. It was to be executed speedily. Ecclesiastes 8, verses, verse 11, gives us the reason for that. It says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. What it's basically saying is, when you don't bring the punishment quickly after you have judged that they are guilty, then you you take away the deterrent from crime. Just as I've mentioned before, if it takes 20 years for someone to actually get to lethal injection, to get to capital punishment, then most of society forgot about this guy. And so you lose the, the deterrent effect. And that's what Ecclesiastes is saying here. When you don't punish people immediately for their crime, then you end up with a society where people have their hearts set on doing evil. They don't see any downside to their evil. Well, you might wonder, after hearing all this, well, why in the world did God establish this kind of rule of law in Israel? I mean, it does seem rather harsh. There are some pretty harsh punishments for crimes in the nation of Israel. And some people say, well, it's because God is mean. He's an ogre, and he likes to hurt people. He just wants to jump on somebody as soon as they have committed anything bad. Well, that's not why God did this in Israel. He did it out of his love and compassion for the nation. He did it so that violence and theft and rape and murder, etc., would be the rare exceptions in the nation, not the norm. He did it so that people could walk the street at night without fear. He did it to protect the innocent. And that really is the purpose behind governing by the strict rule of law. It is to protect the innocent and to suppress the evil intentions of humankind's hearts. My friends, that really is why we're in such a dangerous place today. Evil is going unpunished. Evil is even excused or celebrated in our society. In the cities uh, that hosted the recent riots, there were actually people in positions of power who raised funds to get the rioters out of, on bail. I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, just a few short months ago, it was a hot topic in New York City about how they changed the law to no longer require bail for quote-unquote, minor offenses. Well, what does that mean? Well, basically what it means is this. Um, somebody walks down the street. They see an older lady carrying a purse. They run up, grab her purse, run away. Now, let's just say it happened to be a police officer nearby. He catches the guy. He's arrested. Now, he's arrested and he goes and appears before a judge to a, at a hearing. The older lady comes and says this is what happened the police officer says this is what happened and the judge says okay we have enough evidence here to go forward with the trial so what the judge then says is well it's going to take us six months before we can get you into the court to have a trial so according to our new law this is a minor offense so you go home you come back on October 25th for your trial. And basically it's like saying you be a good boy until then. Well, it's ridiculous. They set it up to where a person was not 
not only not punished, but not likely to receive punishment and was able to go out and commit more crime. It, and this law violates these principles of Scripture. And it's so bad that you know, one of the cases that got national attention was Charles Barry, who at the time I read about him was 56. The man had been arrested 139 times. He was taken to court and then released without requiring bail to await trial. And then he'd go back out and commit more crime. We said, well, what was he doing? He's basically trolling the subway system in New York City and going up and stealing people's stuff, holding them up, taking their wallets or whatever else, demanding money from them, and then running away. And so he'd appear in court, and they would say, your trial is set for down the road, and they'd say, see you then, release him without requiring him to have any kind of bail. That's the opposite of what we're talking about here in terms of the rule of law and punishing evil. And it's not just New York City. The, the entire U.S., the U.S. Department of Statistics, I read, about the average time that individuals actually serve for murder. You know what the average is? 13 years. For a murder. And this was murder as their conviction. This was not murder as some sort of, um, you know, that they actually committed murder and then they went into the back room with the lawyers and they uh, negotiated their charge down to manslaughter and then got 13 years or served 13 years. No, this is when they're actually convicted of murder. This was not a reduced sentence. It's, and by the way, that's an average. 13 years is an average. That means some people committed murder and, and got less than 13 years. Uh, and put that in perspective, by the way, the average time served according to the U.S. Department of Statistics, for drug possession is 15 years. That means some people serve more time in prison because they're arrested because they, they had cocaine or something on their person than somebody who went into somebody's house and shot them in the head or, or drive-by or whatever else other means by which they committed murder. That's why we have a mess on the streets of some of our cities. Because the government is not performing its chief function to punish evil and to govern by the rule of law. You might say, but preacher, sometimes the wrong people get punished. The wrong people are executed. Innocent people die. Yes, that, that does happen. And DNA evidence has proven that to us in later years. But the problem is this. The problem is we are in a society, we are in a world of sinful people. And no matter what the system is, whether we have a system of law, which is the school of hard knocks, you know, we really buckle down on crime, or if we're a society of snowflakes and and we say, oh, well, let them off. They've been a good prisoner. Whatever extreme we go to, innocent people are going to be are going to die. In the society of hard knocks, yes, there are innocent people who die by being executed. But in the society where there is no law. There's no punishment for crime. Innocent people die in their homes because criminals are running rampant in the society and they know they're not going to be punished. So innocent people are going to die regardless. But the truth of the matter is more innocent people die in the loosey-goosey society than the ones that are in the hard-knock society. So, God gave us the government and the rule of law. Not because it was perfect, but because it would minimize the damage 
and the death of innocent people. Well, that's where we're going to end today. Next time, when we pick up this passage of Scripture, we're going to look at the role of government and that it is limited by the Bible. I guess if you're going to translate that point, you would say you're answering the question, when do I not have to submit to government? That's what we're going to pick up with next time. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for your word, and we thank you for how clear it is. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of justice, but we thank you as well that you're a God of grace and love, and that you love societies and want to see a place that can be peaceful and tranquil, where people are safe. And in those kind of societies, we can come to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to salvation. Even those that are criminals that are in prison or those who are arrested, you still extend that grace, that forgiveness. Even though they may not be forgiven here in this world, in this society, by our judges, Lord, if they turn to you in faith, they can be forgiven of their sins and enter into eternity with you. We thank you for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.